Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to Humanities West at the Commonwealth Club. We're here for our second uh, program of the season. Uh, This is our 2023-2024 season, and we have the 400th anniversary of uh, Shakespeare's uh, first folio when the plays were all put together. And uh, I kind of noticed that, you know, Humanities West is now a little bit over 40 years old. So we're about 10% as old as Shakespeare. And, uh, and that's really about all it says about us. <laughs> oh, really happy to see everybody here tonight. And uh, we'll go right to the program. Uh, we have two uh, favorite uh, speakers here for Humanities West, Roland Green from Stanford and Kip Crana from the San Francisco Opera. And we're going to discuss Shakespeare, which can never go wrong. Roland, go, Roland thank you very much for coming. The first version of this talk was prepared for um, uh, uh, an event a couple of months ago uh, at the University of London for their celebration of the 400th anniversary of the first folio. And then I was looking forward so much to doing this uh, event tonight with Kip and George that I changed it around and added some things to it. So this is the um, second edition of this talk. Uh, 400 years ago today, a reader who perused the books on offer at several of the bookshops in St. Paul's Churchyard, London's center of the book trade, would have encountered the same title, a new volume in folio with the air of its present moment about it in a number of shops, such as those of Edward Blunt at what had been the sign of the black bear, William Aspley at the sign of the parrot, or Matthew Loans at the Bishop's Head. These booksellers, along with the recently deceased William Jaggard and his son and successor Isaac, whose shop was located several hundred feet to the north in Barbican, were members of the syndicate that published the book in question, titled Mr. William Shakespeare's Comedies, Histories, and Tragedy, the object around which we gather today, that has come to be known as the first folio. Between 750 and 1,000 copies were printed and sold for about a pound each, a little less for an unbound copy. For a skilled worker in the 1620s, a pound would amount to one to two months' wages. Apart from the figures such as Blunt, who served as both publishers and booksellers, the instigators of this event were two retired actors, the 50th Henry Condell, and the even more elderly John Hemmings, both associated with the theatrical company known as the Kingsmen, which was still a going concern and would remain so until the closing of the theaters in 1642. The role of Hemmings and Condell in the presentation of the volume speaks a complex message to any discerning reader. On the one hand, The book carries a dedication to the most noble and incomparable pair of brethren, William Herbert, the third Earl of Pembroke, and his younger brother, Philip, who was at the time the Earl of Montgomery and became, after William's death a few years later, the fourth Earl of Pembroke. These brothers had an impeccable literary lineage as uh, sons of the poet and patron Mary Sidney and nephews of Sir Philip Sidney, the preeminent uh, literary figure in England at the end of the 16th century, uh, along with the fact that they, especially William, were supporters of the king's men, 
So the dedication to them announces the volume as a literary occasion connected to what we have to regard as the nascent canon of English poetry. And remember that in this moment, poetry is the contemporaneous word for what we would call literature today. It's not limited to verse. Uh, much as aspiring poets two generations earlier in the same sort of gesture would have dedicated their work to the uncle of these two guys, Sidney himself. Hemings and Condell's faith in Shakespeare's standing in this dedication is not absolute. The dedication calls the plays these trifles and insists that only because the two Herbert brothers, quote, have been pleased to think these trifles something has the volume asked to be yours. Now, coming in the wake of Ben Jonson's ostentatiously titled Works of Seven Years Earlier, which was itself one step ahead of its time in declaring something that was fairly outrageous in 1616, the idea that the author of not only poetry but plays for the commercial theater in the English language could be said to have works. Uh, this volume of 1623 comes along seven years later, corroborates Johnson's presumption, and on the notional shelf of literature in the in the vernacular, it clears a space for the 36 plays of the folio. In the next instant, Hemings and Condell apply a different tone in a prefatory letter to the great variety of readers. This curious document takes its approach from how uh, a, 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 a certain kind of journeyman writer of this period, an example would be um, a sort of jack-of-all-trades figure like Thomas Nash, the way that they address their publics in a frankly commercial way. I don't know, you probably can't read it, but I'll quote what it says at the beginning of this, of this uh, address to the readers. From the most able to him that can but spell, there you are numbered. We had rather you were weighed especially when the fate of all books depends upon your capacities, and not of your heads alone, but of your purses. Well, it is now public, and you will stand for your privileges, we know, to read and censure. Do, but buy it first. Perhaps oddly by the standards of only a few years earlier, but in a sign of the times, the judgment of prospective readers from the broad public concerns Hemings and Condell more than that of the elite William and Philip Herbert, from whom so much favor, quote-unquote, can be expected because of their demonstrated interest in Shakespeare's plays. Aristocratic patronage has already been offered and accepted, making the dedication to the Herberts the record of a past transaction, while in their variety Common readers prompt a palpable sense of unease that manifests itself as importuning, almost heckling the reader. Quote, How odd soever your brains be or your wisdoms, make your license the same and spare not. Judge your sixpence worth, your shillings worth, your five shillings worth at a time or higher, so you rise to the just rates and welcome. But whatever you do, buy. End of quote. Already in these first three pages following the title page, one notices what we might consider to be three adjacent spaces into which this publishing venture enters all at once. Posterity, as represented by a collected works. Patronage, as 
embodied in the Herberts, and publicity, not only in the modern sense of promotion, but as the act of making public um, and and offering this book directly to uh, a public of with a, of a wide level of backgrounds and, and, and preparation, as shown in this address to a potentially vast and imperfectly understood mass of readers. Many books of this era are conceived as belonging to one or sometimes two of these spaces, but few manifest an appeal to all three or attempt to gather them together into a unitary space for the purposes of the book as a multidimensional audience assembles for itself, uh, as a month that it assembles for itself. Before I finish this evening, I, I hope to show that what that audience comes together for is something new, a gathering of worlds that reflects the gathering of readers. Where all these forces meet, the first folio becomes an engine of cultural renewal. In 1623, a volume of plays under the name of a single playwright was inherently a risky proposition. The market for plays was in the theater, not in books, and the vast majority of plays that were performed never found their way into print, by one estimate more than 80%. Many, if not most, plays were collaborative works in which two or more playwrights had a hand, and audiences were conditioned to think in terms of properties such as the Spanish tragedy or King Lear that often surfaced over the years in multiple versions by the same company. The first folio invites its readers to set all of that custom and convention aside and invest in the notion of a named sole author, and that without what Ben Jonson built upon in his works the transfer of authority from poetry by the same figure, because Jonson's works includes a lot of poetry in various genres. It's not only plays for the commercial theater. As Roger Chartier and others have noted, sole authorship here is a convenient fiction that both obscures the collective practices of the theater and promotes an idealized image of the playwright as the single natural source of these works. Quote, his mind and hand went together, Hemings and Condell claim, and what he thought he uttered with that easiness that we have scarcely received from him a blot in his papers, unquote. Shakespeare's mind, hand, and writing merge into the artifact that may be purchased for one pound, permitting us to read him. We might say that after the 36 plays in the, in the folio, the 37th fiction is the one that envelops the entire project, the making of Shakespeare as instinctive, sovereign genius. Now, half the plays in the folio were already known from earlier publication in quarto editions. Are people familiar with the difference between a folio and a quarto? Let me just, let me just say something about that briefly. Imagine this is a much bigger piece of blank paper. Um, if you're going to print on it to make it into a, a, a printed book, you fold it once. You take the, the, the sheet you start with. Imagine much bigger, the, twice the size of this. You fold it in half. That's a folio. And you print on the sides, on the, on the leaves. Right? You fold it again, and it's a quarto. And you print on these smaller pages quarto, folded twice. You print it, you fold it again, and it's an octavo. Uh, so it gets smaller. 
A quarto is about the size of a of a, in this period is about the size of a the smaller kind of paperback book, and uh, a folio is more like a coffee table book, and an octavo is something you could put in a pocket easily. You know, so so those are the the three, mostly the three sizes of of um, that we're talking about. And and remember, there are no absolute sizes to these things. It all depends on how big the first piece of paper is, right? So so, but folio means folded once, quarto folded twice, and so on. So as I said, half the plays in the first folio were already known from earlier publications in quarto editions. The remaining 18 had not been previously published, including As You Like It, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, Antony and Cleopatra, and the three plays that appear first in each section. I could, uh, by the way, I could kick myself. I should have made for you an, a slide of the what amounts to the table of contents for the volume. But what it is, is it just says at the top, a catalog of the plays contained in this volume. And then it says, it lists all the, all the comedies, all the tragedies, and all the histories in, 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 a, in a kind of idiosyncratic order. Um, so, the three, so among the plays that had never been published in quarto were the three plays that appear first in each section. That is, The Tempest under Comedies. King John under histories and Coriolanus under tragedies. On the title page, the statement under the title, published according to the true original copies, encodes this selling point. For a previously published play in which Shakespeare's authorship is assumed, something that perhaps the, the buyer had already read in quarto, the folio offers a version that is true and original in the sense that the text is reliable and the whole play close to an origin in his already honored powers of conception. Other editions, it is implied, are potentially unreliable as texts and derivative as ideas. At the same time, for newly published plays, the words true and original mean something else, affirming rather than assuming Shakespeare's authorship and brandishing originality not in comparison to another edition, but as a claim that this play has never been encountered anywhere in print at all. The adaptability of these seemingly natural, neutral words, true and original, to different expectations is a sign of how the volume assembles disparate orientations into its own purpose-built universe. The division of the plays into a catalog according to the genres of comedy, history, and tragedy, deserves some attention for a moment. Comedy and tragedy are categories out of Aristotle's poetics, of course, while history seems to be an adaptation to the nature of the Shakespearean corpus, whether the playwright's own label, as recalled by Hemings and Condell, or their extrapolation from his practice. The division, at once classical and ad hoc, is very much of his late 16th and early 17th century moment. Let's pause for a moment to remember where early modern humanism came from. In its sense as philology, literally the love of words or the knowledge of texts, humanism means the rediscovery of the classics or the writings of Greek and Roman antiquity. Shakespeare experienced humanism in this sense during his childhood when, at age seven or so, he took instruction at the King's New School in Stratford. The curriculum there was familiar across England, careful study of classical texts, rote memorization of Latin grammar, and lots of imitation of canonical examples. Medieval education had been centered on logic, 
theology, mathematics, and other relatively abstruse arts. The Renaissance sees a recentering so that education becomes oriented toward the so-called liberal arts, originally grammar, dialectic, rhetoric, arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. What do these have in common? They take the measure of the immediate material rather than spiritual world. They prepare educated men, unfortunately not usually women in this period, to have a civic, diplomatic, and cultural participation in this world rather than preparing exclusively for the next. This is the foundation of the humanities. It is about emphasizing those disciplines that make mere human beings into humane beings, that allow us to become. Why grammar? as Shakespeare and his fellow schoolboys must have asked themselves. My teenage daughter asks me the same question. Why grammar? Grammar is the core of this educational practice because it mediates between worlds and worldviews, between past and present, between parts of ourselves. Uh, how many of you have had the experience of learning grammar a different way when you, from, when you learn a foreign language and suddenly you, you, things that as a native speaker of, say, English, you don't realize there are subjects, there are objects, there are, there are uh, you know, uh, uh, all kinds of ways of, of constructing the world through grammar that aren't apparent to you until you look at it from the outside. We think of grammar in the modern sense as something technical, but the Renaissance notion of grammar is as the art and science of language, syntax, etymology, prosody, etc. When the Roman, actually Spanish, rhetorician Quintilian looks for a translation of the Greek grammatici into Latin, he suggests literatura, which is not yet the modern literature, but is something like letters, the art and science of letters. Those of us who study literature within the humanities are the direct descendants of this humanist educational philosophy. Now, in this spirit, Renaissance humanists venerate the classics. They regard the Middle Ages incorrectly as dark, the epithet chosen by the Italian poet Francesco Petrarca, because they perceive that much of the writing of antiquity was lost or put aside then only to be rediscovered in the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries. It is true, however, that classical texts begin to be rediscovered at a faster clip uh, in the 15th century, and that the pace quickens across the 16th century. Shakespeare's classics are different from those of, say, Englishmen a generation or two before him because he has more access to the texts, and more texts create a richer encounter with antiquity. We gain a sense of the folds of the Renaissance when we note that in February of 1564, the, the artist and poet Michelangelo Buonarroti died while the astronomer Galileo Galilei was born. And in the spring of that same year, 1564, the Protestant reformer John Calvin died a month or so after Shakespeare was born. If we permit ourselves to imagine something kind of silly, that exchanging Michelangelo and Calvin for Galileo and Shakespeare, we see the period turning from more abstract notions of how human beings ought to exist in relation to God, to time and space, and to history, all foundational questions of humanism and the Reformation, and toward practical observation of the world as it is. 
At the same mid-century moment, major editions and translations were becoming available of classical texts were becoming available right and left, so that someone like Shakespeare, maybe especially Shakespeare, with a foundation in Latin, perhaps some Greek, and probably a working knowledge of Italian, found himself often exposed to a newly translated treatise of Aristotle or some other classical author, or a modern restaging of Aristotelian ideas, uh, such as that of Sir Philip Sidney in his Apology for Poetry, published posthumously in 1595. Our hypothetical customer in the bookstalls of St. Paul's Churchyard might have come across Lodovico Castelvetro's commentary on Aristotle's Poetics, published in 1570, or any number of derivative works that appeared over the next decades. And as the available corpus of classical thought expanded, it became a matrix with which the educated man could fully converse, searching out contradictions, staking out disagreements, and making it part of one's everyday experience. Shakespeare's relationship to the classics reflects that of his era, not existential or reverential in the way of earlier generations of humanists, but often practical, sometimes ironic, and always for use. Aristotle wrote that the dramatic genres were comedy and tragedy. Shakespeare's company, who in the their Elizabethan career before the accession of King James had been known as the Lord Chamberlain's Men, had met the challenge of mythologizing English history to accommodate the propaganda of the Tudors in plays such as Henry V and Richard III, not to mention Henry VIII, with its defensive alternate title, All is True, as though to insist that contrasting reports of, Tudor prop of the Tudors were fake news. One can imagine the playwright setting down his copy of Castelvetro's Aristotle and telling his company, now the king's men, that they had invented a new genre, the history play, of and for their times. So what Hemings and Condell show us in their catalog is a pragmatic Aristotelian division in the spirit of the generation born after 1550. That response to classical norms Accommodating Aristotle, but also expanding his observations, marks one of the ways that the first folio announces itself as a work not only of English, but of world literature. The notional book buyer of 1623 might have come across another title, published only three years earlier and also published by Edward Blunt, that declared itself in a comparable way. This was the history of Don Quixote, as the British audience would say, Don Quixote, the first part of which had been translated into English for the first time in 1612. The, 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 the original book was published in 1605, part one, 1615, part two, 10 years apart. But in English, the first part appeared in 1612 by the translator Thomas Shelton, and it then appeared, the two parts together complete, by Shelton in 1620, so just three years before the first folio. It seems likely that Shakespeare himself, in the final years of his career and life, would have known Shelton's translation of Quixote because the King's Men are recorded as having performed in 1613 a play, The History of Cardenio, now unfortunately lost, whose title uh, is likely taken from one of the most prominent interpolated tales in Don Quixote. 
Much later, around mid-century, Shakespeare was named as co-author of that play with his younger collaborator, John Fletcher. Hemings and Condell omit Cardenio from the first folio as they exclude several of the plays that are considered to be collaborations, such as Pericles and the Two Noble Kinsmen. Surely one of the, the principles being promoted by the folio, perhaps the foremost one, is Shakespeare's sole authorship, and the title page makes that point vividly. I'd like to suggest, however, that the conception of the first folio goes further, and that the fact of Shakespeare's sole authorship should be seen, in terms borrowed from grammar, transitively, that we are being invited to see him as the singular author of not only 36 plays, not even works in the manner of Johnson, but something else, something itself singular. Its nature depends on who is being addressed. To the Herbert brothers, that something might be the present, meaning like gift, worthy of their highnesses, as Hemings and Condell call them. To the great variety of readers, as we observed, it is the book on sale. To the presumed general reader of the folio, however, it is a world, or better, a universe made of many worlds, and its publication in 1623 represents the worlding of William Shakespeare. Let me develop what I mean. Until the appearance of the folio, Shakespeare's plays were available as either or both of two kinds of phenomena, as performances to be experienced by an audience in the theater, and as books in quarto format to be read silently or aloud, singly or in a group, by those who purchase them, one play per quarto. In either phenomenon, the play is a bounded sample of alternative reality, a world. It might take place in Venice, Vienna, or London. It might be set in antiquity, the present, or any time in between. We are obliged to, to, to accept and uh, receive every such sample as it is presented to us. Aristotle authorizes unities of time and space that are not always followed, but nonetheless confirm the distinctiveness of each fictional world. And as a practical matter of either theater going or reading, we cannot experience a line a scene, or an entire play in juxtaposition to another one. At the start of Shakespeare's career, in what might be the first soliloquy within his extant plays, this is in the Comedy of Errors, first time a character speaks in soliloquy, uh, Antiphilus of Syracuse, a young man in search of his family, locates himself in relation to the wider world. I, to the world, am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop. From the perspective of youth, we might say, Antiphilus registers his own fragility against the background of a world assumed to be stable and all-absorbing, as a young person might look at the big world out there. Then at the presumed end of Shakespeare's career, in The Tempest, in one of Prospero's final speeches, Shakespeare returns to the idea of people melting into the world, but with a difference that reveals the perspective of an older man who might be Prospero, but might be Shakespeare himself. Prospero says, this is, starts about three lines down from the, from the larger passage, Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air, and like the baseless fabric of this vision, 
the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant, faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Now, as people melt into the world, the world itself melts around them. What in youth seemed to be an insight into the frailty and vulnerability of the individual, which in The Comedy of Errors is portrayed as a search for one's identity through one, trying to find one's counterpart, identity from Edem, the same, one drop finding another, has been transmuted into a general condition in the Tempest. There is no stable identity. There is no ocean into which to get absorbed. There is no world. Not only ourselves, but everything around us is illusion. The contrastive reading that I've just offered uh, is always feasible, of course, but the format of the plays in quarto editions does nothing to encourage it. Each play is presented there as a discrete fiction, sometimes singular, as in Love's Labor's Lost, which makes only one appearance in Porto, and sometimes iterative, as in Titus Andronicus and Hamlet, both of which have two quartos with significant differences between them. When the differences between quartos are severe enough, as in Hamlet, we might be tempted to say that they represent alternate worlds with a setting and some characters in common. But what the, what the quartos resist by their nature is the notion of Shakespeare as author of one thing, a universe of many perspectives. Now think back to that bookstall with Shelton's translation of Don Quixote alongside the first folio. Cervantes and Shakespeare, along with Philip Sidney, Edmund Spencer, and other notable writers, belong to a generation born between about 1550 and 1565. We think Cervantes is... Um, born just a little before that period, while Shakespeare is at the younger end of that range. As makers of fiction, that generation has a number of influential convictions, and none of them is more powerful than the understanding that if a, fic if a fictional world will do justice to a recognizable reality, will show posterity how it feels to be alive in a certain time and place, it must be made from multiple perspectives. Among the achievements of Don Quixote is to gather the kinds of fiction that conventionally before his time would have occupied discrete books of fiction, such as pastoral about shepherds, chivalric about knights, courtly about courtiers, utopia, an ideal society, picaresque, a far from ideal society with people at the bottom of, you know, people barely hanging on, uh, and so on, and make them come into contact with each other within the fiction. Cervantes asks, how does a shepherd critique a knight? What does a woman from a courtly fiction say to a woman from a picaresque? When a Christian newly converted to Islam, uh, converted from Islam, joins a communal meal in a humble Spanish inn, what happens? Boccaccio and Chaucer anticipate this kind of friction in their collections of tales, of course, but even they tend to bring the tellers of vastly different tales into contact, not all the characters. Sidney and Thomas Nash, I mentioned them a few moments, Nash a few moments ago as a kind of journeyman member of the 1550s generation. They also, in, in prose fiction, they try to explore multiple perspectives in the manner of the picaresque where, uh, uh, for them, 
uh, a protagonist serially comes into contact with people from all different walks of life and you you assemble a picture of the highs and lows of society by in a, in a sequence of, of episodes. But also those characters in those episodes do not all come into contact with each other. It's all in the experience of the protagonist. One may only guess at what prompted Cervantes to fashion a fictional world out of many perspectives. Perhaps his experience crossing social classes, he was born in poverty, he rose to work in the household of a cardinal. Perhaps his experience in war or in captivity by pirates, which he did experience. Maybe it was simply his dismal record as the author of a conventional pastoral romance 20 years before, which he tried, he tried to write the way people wrote prose fiction in the, at the end of the century, and it wasn't very successful. In any case, the appearance of Don Quixote in 1605 established a model for fiction that became the template for a new genre of prose fiction, the novel. And it instantly rendered all of its motley antecedents dated, if not obsolete. While the first part of Quixote in 1605 goes to some lengths to obfuscate the presence of an author identifying itself as the translation of a story by an obscure Muslim historian, in the second part in 1615, Cervantes steps forward as the creator of the work in view of how many of its prose fiction precursors treat their authorship with a greater level of ambiguity or diffidence the emergence of Cervantes as the professed author of the first novel counts as not only a major event in literary history, but a cultural turning point. The gears of an engine are turning. Now consider what the first folio offers us. 36 plays appear in an arrangement controlled by the categories of comedy, history, and tragedy. Except for when certain plays belong to a sequence for example, the so-called Henriad consisting of Richard II, the two parts of Henry IV, and Henry V, the worlds of the plays are separate and distinct. A single character may even appear in dissimilar worlds conditioned by different genres, such as Falstaff in the two parts of Henry IV and The Merry Wives of Windsor. One by one, the plays take their samples of alternative realities, past and present, here and there, us and them. The folio assembles them into an inventory of worlds and declares this entire universe to be under the charge of the master worldmaker William Shakespeare and represented in its first appearing work, The Tempest, by his surrogate Prospero. All plays, by definition, are made of different perspectives, of course, but much in the way that the Quixote treats each genre of prose fiction that preceded it as one available perspective among many, the folio treats each play as a container of perspectives to be experienced alongside all the others. Above all, it shows Shakespeare to be the author of many plays, but at the same time, one thing. Of course, the celebration of the author tends to mask the role of another figure whose agency grows in both the novel and the folio, and that is the reader. In a certain way, you could, you could make this whole argument that I'm making and say that what you're witnessing in both Quixote and the first folio is the birth of the modern reader. Both works address him or her directly in a prefatory letter, which is a gesture that is not often seen in earlier prose fictions or in quarto editions of Shakespeare's plays. And perhaps that, if you remember back to where I started, that aggressive approach to readers by Hemings and Condell, putting them in their place as merely customers, 
is a backhanded acknowledgement that as perspectives multiply and fictional worlds grow more complex, a new kind of power is now in play, that of the reader to mediate and interpret. A few moments ago, I offered a rudimentary contrast between two passages, one from The Comedy of Errors and the other from The Tempest, the presumed bookends of Shakespeare's career. The rough interpretation that I made, two ways of thinking about the world, was based solely on a single observation encouraged by the presence of the two plays in the first folio, 65 pages apart. That kind of observation could become the starting point of many kinds of analysis, philological, perhaps attentive to the changing senses of a word, such as world, philosophical, or how the passage uh, how the passages expose two positions of the self in relation to the world, psychological, perhaps the difference between young and old, historical, maybe how Elizabethans and Jacobeans might differ in how they see England in relation to the world, and much more. It would take an unusual member of Shakespeare's theatrical audience to notice and develop that contrast from watching the plays. It might take an even more unusual reader, it, we might even call such a reader a scholar, to do the same from the quarto editions. That is, if for these plays quarto editions had existed, they didn't, and if scholars at the time paid any attention to Shakespeare during his lifetime, which they didn't. But with the appearance of the first folio, however, it takes only a reader who might very well notice these mutually enriching passages separated by only a few pages. Unlike what's possible in the novel, the characters of these plays will never cross paths in an inn. They must, however, coexist in the experience of the reader, who is free to notice how various characters conceive of the world, their moral lives, love, and everything else, even within the same genre, let alone different ones. What in an earlier iteration of a play or a pre-novelistic pre prose fiction might have been elements received as fairly inert to intervention, say vocabulary, plot devices, or philosophical statements, become ripe for collation in world-making books such as Quixote and the Folio. And with collation, the reader's agency begins. Suddenly, we are aware of several interlocking moving parts, the author, the reader, multiple texts, and at that point, what I'm calling a cultural engine comes into action. There is, we might say, a phenomenology of such works. Elements that might not matter in less capacious books come under our notice, something like the way a worldly person observes things even at home that might escape another's attention. Among details of this sort are mistakes, and I'm going to conclude with a couple of examples of of what might be considered mistakes in these world, these two world-making books. In a fiction that occupies one world, a mistake is often only a mistake. But when we have been in other worlds, we can imagine other ways of interpreting it, perhaps as holding greater meaning in another light, another context, another language, so to speak. Two examples of this phenomenology of the mistake come to mind in the two world-making books I've been discussing, Don Quixote and, of course, the folio. Don Quixote notoriously features a lot of unstable names. Sometimes the narrator tells us that a character's exact name is unknown or equivocal, and sometimes the names simply change from one part of the story to another. Is that a sign of the author's inattention? Or does it indicate that the book traverses worlds, 
where names may be rendered or understood in various ways according to who is observing. Have you ever gone by different names in the different worlds of your life, say, from childhood to your job to parenthood? The great mid-20th century philologist Leo Spitzer argued that the names in Quixote are not mistakes, but are a window into the instability of observable reality in the novel and ultimately a testament to the power of the novelist who holds it all together. So that's one phenomenology of the mistake as something, a seeming mistake as something other than a mistake, in fact, a, 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 a window into a world. For my second and final example, um, I'm going to adduce something that if there are any Shakespeareans in the audience, you will uh, probably already be familiar with it is the, and I hope you'll pardon me for using this as my example, probably the most famous crux in the whole Shakespeare canon, which is in the folio, the description in Henry V of Falstaff's death. The passage goes like, we, we don't see Falstaff in Henry V, but we, we hear him, he's off stage and we hear his death narrated by the hostess who is part of his circle. And the hostess says, um, describing, of course, you know, Falstaff is this larger-than-life figure who represents excess in every way. She puts it thus, For after I saw him fumble with the sheets and play with flowers and smile upon his finger's end, I knew there was but one way, for his nose was as sharp as a pen and a table of green fields. Uh this passage has been worked over to death by scholars. The the thing about his nose being as sharp as a pen is a was a, a conventional um, physiological change that was associated with imminent death. Uh, the the features sort of contract, uh, but the table of green fields has usually been thought to make no sense, uh, and every possible explanation over the years was offered for it. My favorite. Uh, of the explanations was that it must be a stage direction that this, according to this interpretation, there was, uh, there must have been at this point a stage hand named Green Fields who for some reason brought in a table at this moment in the soliloquy. There's no reason for that, um, but it actually led to then some scholar added Green Fields to the list of people that we know were part of Shakespeare's company. Um, but it, it makes, it, you know, it's a complete, it's completely made up, uh, 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 explanation. The 18th century, uh, editor, Lewis Tybalt proposed an emendation in 1726 that has been generally accepted, which is table becomes babbled. And in Elizabethan English, a with an apostrophe can be he. So he babbled of green fields. Uh, I saw him fumble with the sheets, play with flowers, smile upon his fingers, and his nose was as sharp as a pen, and he babbled of green fields, which enables a sentimental image of the dissolute Falstaff reverting in his last moments to the memory of a pastoral childhood, which one could never imagine him having. Uh, but, uh, but a number of other, that's one reading, that's Tybalt's, and if you go to almost any modern edition of Shakespeare, you will find Tybalt's reading in there as the text. Um, but a number of other readings have been proposed, um, some of them persuasive, some not. And I'm actually, I take no position on all these possible versions, but I, but I want to observe uh, in line with what I've been arguing is that what in a quarto might be a stubborn enigma 
a word that makes no sense in context, becomes in the folio an object of critical reflection as we look for other usages of the word table, we look for other deathbed scenes, and we find all kinds of context that could eventually prompt a Tybalt to propose babbled. The phenomenology of the mistake in the folio means that even a line or a passage, passage that seems self-evidently wrong can end up as right when we're able to understand the world from which it comes. And the empirical success of Tybalt's babbled is a feat, I would say, not only of editorial sensitivity or style, but of world-making. A single word uh, reveals a world in Falstaff's past behind the present-day world of Henry V. As the multiple worlds come into contact, the play at hand shifts. Arguably, other plays in the volume featuring Falstaff shift in relation. The reader's understanding of Falstaff shifts in turn, and the engine moves. So in early 2024 then, 400 years after the publication of the folio, we celebrate an event that introduced to posterity and a wide public a volume not only for England but or, or Britain, but for the world, a book not only of plays but of worlds, worlds that speak to each other, change each other, and generate thought, what I call a cultural engine. I feel certain that 100, 200, 400 years from now, our successors will gather to commemorate the same book on the terms that, at that point, make sense to them. Thank you. Hi, Kip Crana. Uh, hello to Humanities West again. It's great to be back in uh, the Commonwealth Club. And uh, I'm honored to be following uh, Professor Green uh, with that uh, wonderful uh, sort of setup for me to talk about Shakespeare and opera. I would never claim to be a Shakespearean scholar, although I adore Shakespeare and have uh, spent a lot of time with him. Um, but I do claim to know a little bit about opera. I've been in my, I'm in my 45th year now of association with San Francisco Opera, during which time I've been involved in the presentation of a number of Shakespeare operas. And so I thought I would bring a little insight from that experience uh, to bear tonight as we look at some of the plays and see what happens when they get turned into operas. Uh, now, I have this little cartoon I found in The New Yorker, which I think tells us why we're glad to have the first folio. Uh, we don't really have any bootleg recordings <laughs> from the Shakespeare period. Um, and so we have to depend on things like the, the first folio for what we um, know about Shakespeare. According to the New Grove Dictionary of Opera, which is the go-to reference work in English about opera, there are more than 270 operas based on the plays of Shakespeare. And that's an old figure. The Metropolitan Opera on its website now estimates the figure closer to 300. So he is by far and away the most popular author when it comes to adapting uh, literary, literary works for, for opera. And I actually have a little... Uh, I should mention that the, the number keeps growing of Shakespeare operas. These are some recent ones. Thomas Odessa's The Tempest in 2004, Brett Dean's Hamlet in 2017, and... I'm sure many of you saw John Adams' Anthony Cleopatra at San Francisco Opera in 2022. So I have a little quiz for you. you know, the people watching online, I'm probably, I don't really have a mechanism for involving you in this. You'll have to sort of make your quiz choice on your own and just uh, uh, think of it to yourself. But for those of you in the room here, after Shakespeare, what other authors' works have been the basis of the most operas? Is it Charles Dickens? Is it Cervantes, about whom we've just been hearing some interesting things? Is it Victor Hugo? 
Is it Sir Walter Scott? Is it Dante? Think for a second. How many votes for Charles Dickens? I see none. How about Cervantes? I see at least one. Victor Hugo? Uh, yeah, there's a scattering there. How about Sir Walter Scott? There's some votes over there. And Dante. Quite a few for Dante. All right. Well, this is a tricky question, but uh, you Scott people are right. Uh, according to the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, there have been at least 93 operas based on Scott. The most, one you maybe heard of is uh, Lucia de Lammermoor, based on his uh, The Bride of Lammermoor. The others on the list there are probably things you've never heard of. You've heard of the books, perhaps, but not the composers. Uh, so he's a distant second to Shakespeare, and let's get back to Shakespeare now. Uh, among the most frequently performed operas, there are three by Verdi, Macbeth, Otello, Falstaff. Uh, Gounod's Romeo and Juliet is performed fairly often. Ambroise Thomas, uh, another French composer, his Amlet, as it's called in French. And Benjamin Britten's A Midsummer Night's Dream, one of my personal favorites. So when I talk about what I call page to stage, I do this fairly often, looking, about the way, looking at the way literature gets transformed into opera. I always uh, quote the Italian dictum, prima le parole, the words come first. Uh, that has to be the inspiration for the composer before he sets pen to paper to uh, put the notes down. But I always point out that this is a transformative process, not an additive one. That is to say, the composer is not taking Shakespeare's words or any other author's and just adding music to them. It's a transformative process where the words become an inspiration, the starting point for a transformational process, which is fascinating for me, at least, to watch. And it's very unpredictable. It depends on what's going on in the mind of the composer and his librettist, that is to say, his, the poet who's writing the text for him to set. So I'm going to explore that. So now we're going to look at four different plays and the, the operas that are based on them and uh, take a look at this uh, page-to-stage transformative process. There are basically three possibilities the way this could work. This is me generalizing here. Uh, there could be a mostly faithful rendering of the text. There could be a sort of a major transformation, taking the text and really making it into something different. And then you could have the text as merely a springboard to something completely new. So we're going to look at examples of all that, starting with this idea of mostly faithful rendering of the text. And we will start with the French composer Hector Berlioz and his version of Much Ado About Nothing, which is called Beatrice and Benedict. I would point out that uh, in the play, the male character is Benedict. Uh, in the opera, he's Benedict. And uh, the composer wrote his own libretto for this, in, in French, of course. And here's a brief synopsis of the scene we're going to look at here. So always at odds, Beatrice and Benedict trade insults regularly. He swears he will never marry. Benedict's friends scheme to trick him into marrying Beatrice by arranging for him to overhear a conversation in which they hint that Beatrice secretly loves him, supposedly based on a report from her female cousin, Hero, while feigning sadness that he doesn't love her back. The trick works, and he decides to pursue her. And here is that scene in the play. This can be no trick. The conference was sadly born... They have the truth of this from Hero. <laughs> Love me! Why? It must be requited. 
I hear how I am censured. They say I will bear myself proudly if I perceive the love come from her. They say, too, that she will rather die than give any sign of affection. I did never think to marry. I must not seem proud. Happy are they that hear their detractions and can put them to mending. They say the lady is fair, tis a truth, I can bear the witness, and virtuous, tis so, I cannot reprove it, and wise, <laughs> but for loving me, by my truth, it is no addition to her wit, nor no great argument of her folly, for I will be horribly in love with her. All right. So what do we do when we take this and turn it into opera? Well, first of all, we have to get rid of a lot of get rid of a lot of the words. There's just too many words here to set to music. We do not want operatic scenes to sound like auctioneering, you know, where it's uh, just babbling out really fast. So here is what uh, we get with uh, Berlioz's opera. Now he wrote this for the Opera Comique, uh, where Carmen also uh, premiered, and they had spoken dialogue there. So like Carmen, this opera has spoken dialogue, and it's taken more or less directly by Berlioz from the play although it was in French. Here, this performance is in English. So here is the equivalent scene in the opera. This can be no trick. The conference was sadly born. They have the truth of it from Hero. Love me! Why? It must be requited. All right. So now this is a situation where the operatic needs sort of uh, take charge and uh, trump the literary needs, you might say. This is going to be an ABA form, which is very typical for an operatic scene or aria, as this is. And so we're going to move now into a B section, and then we're going to come back to this A section we just heard, repeating all that, which, of course, is not what we find in Shakespeare. Here is the B section. A section returning. Yes, I am in love with joy. I announce it. Farewell to my pride. I hereby renounce it. At last, I am sure it's her I adore. At last, I am sure it's her I adore. I love and adore. I love and adore. All right. So there we have an example of a fairly straightforward uh, setting of the text, obviously with cuts and uh, changes to some extent. 
Uh, many of you go to the San Francisco Opera. You've heard uh, Alex Schrader, young tenor who was in our uh, Young Artist Program some years ago. He's had a great career. He's actually on staff now at San Francisco Opera while uh, continuing uh, to sing. All right, let's look at a more major transformation from Shakespeare into opera. And we're going to go to Verdi, who was a great Shakespearean by his own admission. He said, he is one of my favorite poets. I have had him in my hands from my earliest youth. Verdi did not read English well, so he knew Shakespeare in Italian. We know that when he was on his deathbed, he had not one but two complete sets of uh, the works of Shakespeare uh, in Italian near him. And we'll look at his Macbeth. In this poster from the world premiere, you see they left the T off. It was, it's pronounced in Italian, Macbeth, but uh, the E-H is there in most cases. Uh, the libretto, that is to say, the text is by Francesco Maria Piave, based on a prose translation by Carlo Rusconi, with additions by Andrea Maffei. So it's kind of a committee job, a team effort. Premiered in Florence in 1487. And uh, Verdi wrote to Piave and said, this tragedy is one of the greatest creations of man. If we can't make something great out of it, let us at least try to do something out of the ordinary. Well, they certainly did. It's not considered one of Verdi's great operas, but it is out of the ordinary. Now, we'll look at this uh, scene from the play. And you know the story. I don't really want to insult your intelligence by telling you all the story of Macbeth, but just to refresh your memory. <laughs> so Macbeth has encountered the wishes. They have hailed him as Thane of Gloms, which he already is, Thane of Cotta, which he's just become, and that he, they hail him as a future king. He writes a letter to his wife telling her about this encounter. She reads it out loud to Otis in the audience, and then she comments in her soliloquy, thinking that she knows her husband is ambitious, but she doubts that he has the cruelty in him uh, that is necessary. Here she is reading the letter, Dame Judy Dench. Hail king that shall be. Hail king that shall be. They met me in the day of success, and I've learned by the perfectest report, they have more in... They have more in them than mortal knowledge. When I burned in desire to question them further, they made themselves air into which they vanished. Whilst I stood wrapped in the wonder of it came missives from the king, who all hailed me Thane of Cordor, by which title before these weird sisters saluted me, and referred me to the coming on of time with hail, king that shall be. This have I thought good to deliver thee, my dearest partner of greatness, that thou mightst not lose the dues of rejoicing by being ignorant of what greatness is promised thee, lay it to thy heart and farewell. Glams thou art. And Cordor. And shall be what thou art promised. Yet do I fear thy nature. It is too full of the milk of human kindness to catch the nearest way. Thou wouldst be great. Art not without ambition. But without the illness should attend it. What thou wouldst highly, that wouldst thou holily. Wouldst not play false, and yet wouldst wrongly win. Thou'dst have great larms, that which cries, thus thou must do if thou have it, and that which rather thou dost fear to do than wishest should be undone. I <gasps> thee hither, that I may pour my spirits in thine ear, and chastise with the valour of my tongue all that impedes thee from the golden round which fate and metaphysical aid doth seem to have thee crowned withal. 
Of course, at this point, the messenger arrives with a note saying that King Duncan is going to spend the night in their castle. And of course, as we know, it'll be his last night on Earth. All right. So what do you do if you're Verdi and want to turn this uh, into an operatic scene? Well, once again, the conventions, the formal needs of opera sort of take over. And we're dealing now with the conventions of opera in Italy in the uh, first half of the 19th century. This is the Ukrainian soprano Lyudmila Monastryska, as Lady Macbeth. And uh, as you would typically do in an opera scene, you start with an orchestral introduction. Now, you'll see that there's the letter lying next to her. In this particular production, the directors decided to have a, a dancer uh, as, dressed as one of the witches who sneaks in and leaves the letter there uh, before the scene starts. Obviously, in a normal production, as in the play, a messenger would simply arrive and deliver her the note. Anyway, here is the orchestral introduction. Now, as in the play, she reads the letter out loud to the audience, in Italian, of course. Nel dì della vittoria io le incontrai, stupito io n'era per le udite cose, quando i nunzi del re mi salutaro, sirdica udore, vaticinio uscito dalle veggenti stesse, che predissero un certo al capo mio, racchiudi in cor questo segreto. Adieu. All right. So now the conventions of Italian opera require recitative, as it's called. That's this sort of singing while speaking. It's not quite song. It's not quite speech. It's in between. It's rhetorical. It's declamatory. And it sort of delivers crucial information. Here is the recitative. You can already see that Verdi's Lady Macbeth is even more formidable than Shakespeare's. And uh, she's going to launch now into her aria. Thank <laughs> you. 
And now, according to the uh, conventions of Italian opera, the orchestra drops out and the singer goes off on an unaccompanied riff, which we call a cadenza. Here is the cadenza. So looking at the play versus what happens in the opera, we uh, prove the time-honored tradition that opera is larger than life. It's big. It's sort of uh, superheated and supercharged, and that's very evident here. Uh, looking at the subtitles that were put into this uh, uh, telecast, uh, we point out the obvious problem with um, Shakespeare and other languages and then translated back into English. Uh, when we first started doing supertitles back in the 80s, this problem came up quickly with Macbeth, as I was telling uh, George and Roland earlier. Uh, in Lady Macbeth's sleepwalking scene, she's looking at her hands and she says, ancora una macchina, which means yet another stain. Obviously, you couldn't put that in the supertitles, could you? It's got to be, yet here's the spot. So there are these problems that are inherent in Shakespeare into another language and then back into English. All right, let's look at Hamlet now. I found this rather interesting picture of Sarah Bernhardt, the great French actress as uh, Hamlet. And we'll look at the famous, there's so many famous speeches in this play, uh, but this is the most famous one, chock full of iconic phrases that crop up in everyday uh, English nowadays. Here's Mr. Brannock again. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing, end them to die, to sleep, no more, and by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? The oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bumpkin. Who would? Fardles bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life. But that the dread of something after death. The undiscovered country. 
from whose bourne no traveller returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience doth make cowards of us all, and thus, the native hue of resolution is sickly o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action all right so as i said chock full of uh, iconic phrases if you're amboise tumor in the 18th century, 19th century in France, what do you do uh, with this scene? Well, obviously, you're going to have to get rid of a lot of text, glorious as it is. Uh, his collaborators here were uh, Michel Carré and Jules Barbier, uh, and they based their libretto, their singable, trans- uh, singable text, uh, based on a French adaptation of Shakespeare's play by Alexandre Dumont Père, uh, the elder who's the author of the uh, swashbuckling novels like The Count of Monte Cristo and, and The Three Musketeers. Uh, with help from Paul Maurice. So having to get rid of a lot of that text, and what they come up with um, illustrates the difficulty of translation. So uh, to be or not to be, that is the question. How do you get this into French that resonates when coming out of the singer's mouth? And what they come up with is être ou ne pas être au mystère. Uh, These are some of the things you run into when you're adapting Shakespeare or any other author. So in this scene, it, uh, the opera scene is more internal, more disconsolate by far than the scene in the play. We have this very melancholy uh, English horn solo. We have repetition of some of the text, ironically, even though we have to get rid of a lot of it. And we have this sort of concentration on that preoccupation with what happens after death, that fear of the unknown there. Here's the scene from the opera. Ce pays 
anyone ever proclaimed this is an improvement upon Shakespeare, but it's an interesting transformation in the sense of what the Germans called Weltschmerz, this world weariness that impermeates uh, uh, the scene uh, musically as well as dramatically. All right, moving on now to uh, using uh, Shakespeare's text as a springboard to something completely new, and we're going to Verdi again and look at his last opera, Falstaff, from 1893. Uh, he was almost 80 uh, when this uh, premiered. And he collaborated with the uh, younger man, a brilliant poet, Arrigo Boito, uh, who was a composer as well, composed the opera Mephistopheles, among others. Uh, they had uh, paired up to do uh, revisions to Verdi's opera, Simo Bocanegra, and they hit it off after an initial sort of, uh, the, well, it's a long story, but they, they were antagonists at first. But uh, they became close collaborators, and Boito then uh, wrote the libretto for his Otello, and finally Falstaff. Now, as you know, there are no Shakespeare plays named Falstaff, but as Roland was pointing out, he appears in three and is mentioned in a fourth. Henry IV's parts one and two, and Mary the Wise of Windsor, he's a character of uh, import, and we hear about his death in Henry V. Now, there is this legend, which is probably only that, that uh, the Mary Wives of Windsor came about as a royal request that Queen Elizabeth said she would love to hear uh, see a play in which uh, Sir John Falstaff was in love uh, who knows? Roland, I bet you don't uh, give much credence to this. <laughs> Remember, who knows? As the Italians say, se non è vero, è ben trovato. If it's not true, it's a good story. Anyway, so I'm going to point out uh, an, uh, an aria in uh, Falstaff, which is basically The Merry Wives of Windsor, turned into an opera, uh, which uh, is inspired by this little dialogue that occurs in Henry IV, Part One. So I think you're familiar again with the situation. Falstaff is the fat knight. He pals around with Prince Hal, this young man who is going to be the future King Henry V. They get into all sorts of scrapes and, and troubles and uh, lots of rambunctiousness. And in this scene, Prince Hal greets Hem, uh, greets uh, Macbeth, greets, what am I talking about? Falstaff. He greets Falstaff when he shows up and he says, here comes lean Jack. Here comes barebone. How now, my sweet creature of bombast, how long is it to go, Jack, that thou sawest thine own knee? 
And Falstaff replies, mine on me. When I was about five years, Hal, I was not an eagle's talon in the waist. I could have crept into any alderman's thumb ring. Boito takes this little germ of an idea and he inserts it into the scene in Act Two of Falstaff, where Falstaff is wooing Mistress Ford. He's come to Mistress Ford's house for an assignation while her husband is away, and she's just playing along. She has no intention of doing anything with him, but she's led a trap for him to teach him a lesson. And uh, in this particular production, which I quite love from the Met uh, in 2013, uh, for this little assignation, she has fixed him, fixed him quite a nice meal. And right at this point, um, we get this little insertion of this aria, the page aria, as it's called, inspired by that little dialogue from Henry IV, uh, where Falstaff sings about what a young slip of a thing, a thin little thing he was when he was a page boy. Now, that's it. That's this little uh, aria. I'm thinking maybe you weren't always concentrating right on the music because you were so fascinated by the turkey. Uh, well, let's look at a more traditional production. This is also from, San, uh, from 2013 from San Francisco Opera. Uh, once again, here is the page aria. So this is Boato taking this little speech from Henry the Fourth, Part One, and rethinking it, finding a new place for it in this wooing scene. Uh, in The Merry Wives of Windsor, a.k.a. Falstaff, as the opera is called. Here's another little speech uh, of Falstaff that gets transformed in a similar way. This is Henry IV, Part Two, and this is Falstaff in praise of the glories of sherry wine, uh, a.k.a. sack. A good sherry sack has a twofold operation. It ascends me into the brain drives me there, all the foolish and dull and crudy vapors which environ it, makes it apprehensive, quick, fugitive, full of nimble, fiery, and delectable shapes, which delivered o'er to the voice, uh, the tongue, which is the birth, becomes excellent wit. The uh, second property of your excellent sherry is the warming of the blood, 
which before cold and settled left the liver white and pale, which is the badge of pusillanimity and cowardice. But the sheriff warms it, makes it coarse from the inwards to the parts extreme. It illumineth the face, which as a beacon gives warning to all the rest of this little kingdom, man to arm. And then the uh, vital commoners and inland petty spirits muster me all to their captain, the heart, who, great and puffed up with his retinue, doth any deed of courage. And this valor comes of Sherry's. All right. So Boato is inspired by this little speech and finds a way to insert this idea, not the speech itself, but the idea of it, into um, Falstaff. And it's the scene after the wooing scene. You know this story. Uh, he's wooing Mistress Ford, and sort of by prearrangement, her husband comes home. That's part of the trap. Falstaff has to hide in the laundry basket with the dirty, filthy underwear and all that stuff. And he gets dumped into the River Thames and gets doused and thoroughly soaked. And uh, in the next scene, he's feeling very grumpy about the world and uh, trying to warm himself up. And uh, things begin to improve when he asks the tavern keeper for a glass of hot wine. Now, that line comes directly from Shakespeare's The Merry Wives of Windsor. The rest of this is Boito's reinterpretation of Falstaff's sherry speech from Henry IV. And please listen here to the brilliance and the way Verdi's music shows us what's going on inside Falstaff as the wine takes effect and improves his mood greatly. Uh, the music is wonderful. All right, 
So a very good example of the uh, idea of taking the text of Shakespeare as just a springboard, really, for something really quite marvelously new and different. Uh, Shakespeare remains uh, an incredible source of inspiration to uh, everyone, including opera composers. And uh, we've looked at the various possibilities of this sort of transformation, the mostly faithful rendering of the text, the major transformation, and then the springboard to something completely new. I think uh, Shakespeare will continue to inspire us as he so put, uh, put it so well. If music be the food of love, play on. Thanks for listening. So Roland and Kip, you want to join us on stage? The first question is, have you spent much time, uh, Roland, uh, looking at the operas that have been done on Shakespeare, or is that sort of a totally different area that you don't look into? Well, I have a you know just a, an audience member's appreciation of opera, so I I haven't done it in any kind of thoroughgoing way. Yeah, you know I'm familiar with um, of the examples that Kip used. I, I wasn't familiar with a couple of the really out there things, but, but the <laughs> canonical things like Verdi and so on, I'm I'm familiar with and I enjoy them a lot. Yeah. So, uh, Kip, one of the questions is for you, since you've done this so many times for us, is how did you get into opera? Oh, what's, uh, your, what's your personal history that, that that led you down this path? Yeah, I can trace it to my junior high days. I grew up in a small town in North Dakota. They're all small mm-hmm. towns in North Dakota. <laughs> and a traveling troupe out of Minneapolis came with piano and did the Barber of Seville. Mm. And I was really quite taken with it. And uh, it didn't occur to me that there were other pieces of a similar nature. <laughs> when I was at the University of North Dakota, I uh, often auditioned for the opera workshop. And uh, they, they were trying to tell me something, and they gave me mute parts. <laughs> so, trying to signal a little bit about where my future musical career might go. Uh, the Met used to tour to Minneapolis in those days. And uh, thanks to the U.S. Navy, uh, after my Vietnam stint, I was uh, sent to Naples, Italy, where if you're interested in music, pretty much the only thing to do is go to the opera. Yeah. That's how I attribute that evolution of interest in opera. Now, I'm I'm sure you were being uh, modest about the singing, but you started wanting to sing in opera? That was my thought. Yes. Right. Yeah. I I realized that there are a lot more talented people than me, and I was better behind the scenes. Well... That's true in writing and in being a professor and just about everywhere. I mean, if you if you uh, rise to the level of San Francisco Opera, the competition is rather stiff. So, um, but great that you have been able to do this uh, all the time with your love, and also because you've been sharing this with us uh, at Humanities West for decades now. It's really been wonderful, right? Your pleasure. And and I think one of the things I like about it is that it you know I mean. Maybe half the audience of Humanities West really likes opera too, but the other half learns to like yeah. uh, opera through through the way that you present it uh, and, and bring it to the other thing. Yeah. So that's really great. So um, question. In regard to the folio title page, was there actual controversy about the authority of the quattro text? In other words, did they, did they, did they wonder? I mean, you, you, you said what the dual meaning of true and original was. So right. how, much, how much doubt was there about the, the quattro text? Well, uh, I mean, every quarto is sort of its own story. Some of them were, um, you know, some of them are pretty authoritative uh, and some of them are not. And, um, you know, what, what, what happens with the 
since the folio is the first place that these 36 plays were ever brought together, and some of them being published for the first time that had no quarto editions, um, you know, they, the I think maybe the way to think about it is rather than that these were that this book, this volume was competing with all of those quartos that had been appearing at that point for decades, right? Since the earliest ones appear in the in the early 1590s, um, that for the that this was something different. This was a not in competition with the quartos, but a kind of quantum leap over them and a kind of completely different um, Shakespeare than anybody had experienced up to that point. Um, and so, so you know, if you go play by play, there are controversies between a quarto edition of something and uh, a folio edition, sometimes between more than one quarto and a folio. You know, the famous example is Hamlet, where in the first quarto, 1603, the to be or not to be speech is... Um, uh, I was doing an exam for a graduate student yesterday, and she had on her reading list uh, the the first 1603 edition of Hamlet, which people don't um, worry about very much because it's so uh, un, almost unrecognizably different from the Hamlet that we're familiar with. But the to be or not to be speech in 1603 is um, uh, to be or not to be. I there's the what is it? I there's the rub. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but it doesn't have any of the philosophical, mm -hmm. all the things that Kip was pointing out, all the things that have become cliches to take arms against the sea of troubles and all that. None of it is there. And Shuffle off this mortal coin. None of that is there. <laughs> and it's simply a very oh, – so what my student was saying yesterday, I said, how do you account for the, the differences in the to be or not to be speech? She said, I think that the, the, the 1603 quarto is like an AI-generated version of <laughs> – you tell it. Uh, write a play about these are the elements, and it comes out in this kind of bare bones play, but not, with, not with any of the philosophical self, you know, reflexivity that we're used to. So, so that's an example where where the the, the uh, uh, then there's a uh, a year or so later after 1603, there's a second quarto that has the speech, and then um, then the folio comes along and sort of chooses between them and, and sort of canonizes the second version, although it has some differences of its own. And if you go buy a modern Hamlet, you're going to get a, an amalgamation of the second two with a little bit here and there of the first one, but there's almost no lines that survive from the first one that people want to hear anymore. So, yeah, so that's an example. The quartos were relatively affordable for the average person to buy? Yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, whereas the, uh, the, the folio is like a, a kind of sumptuous coffee table book. You know, um. well, you mentioned canonized, and, and that's another one of the questions: is um, how is this similar to uh, the uh, gospel stories that got canonized three hundred years after they were written down, and and some kicked out and some not? Because Shakespeare's plays have been treated somewhat similarly. There are several that have been kicked out, and uh, right. later on, people say, "Well, you know, maybe." He worked a little bit on it, but not enough for us. Yeah. So why don't you tell a little bit about that story? Because that's well, pretty wild. Uh, yeah. So after the folio, you know, then there's, of course, a second folio, a third folio eventually. And uh, what? You, and starting with the second folio, a, b a batch of new plays come in, uh, including some that we no longer consider to be by Shakespeare. Uh, and so there is a kind of process of, of sort of sifting that goes on over decades and generations after the starting really with the first folio, which is the first time anybody thinks of there being a Shakespeare canon. And um, 
And then they, you know, they, um, the sifting continues all through the 17th, 18th century. Um, and meanwhile, at the same time, the phenomenon that I talked about at the end of, of, uh, the emendation of cruxes and the, and sometimes not even, sometimes it's a line that makes perfect sense, but an editor just decides another line would be better. <laughs> and, and because some of Shakespeare's editors, like Alexander Pope or Lewis Tybalt, are poets, you know, you realize that what's happening over time is the canon is being uh, selected and kind of organized and plays come in and go out. And then eventually it becomes the, the canon that now more or less we think there are 37 that are in and then a number of others that are sort of on the margins. But not only are the plays themselves being organized that way, but the, the, the lines themselves are being exactly as happened with the Bible, are being uh, improved or changed or, you know, a later generation sees something in a line that an earlier generation didn't and they, they sort of improve it. So the, so the result is when you read Shakespeare now, if you read a modern edition, if you don't go back and look at the textual notes at the back of the play and you just take it as given, you're reading uh, uh, in almost every case some kind of an amalgamation of quarto, folio, sometimes more than one folio, more than one quarto, and also all the later versions of particular lines that, that editors have contributed over the years. So you might almost say, you know, of course we love Shakespeare. We wrote him. You know, <laughs> we, we made him into over generations into, a, uh, you know, uh, timeless. Sure, because every generation has a hand, you know, so it is it, it is biblical in a way like that. Well, these brothers that you mentioned that uh, the aristocracy uh -huh. that that made this happen are, are responsible. For, I mean, nobody ever took a poet and canonized him in this way. And uh, one other question about that is, are any of the 36 in the first folio have been proven to not be or, or, or decided to be kicked out, or are all 36 still in? Oh, let me think. Uh, no, they're all still in. Yeah. Also. yeah so there's only been one edition. That's pretty good for a first folio. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd be curious about uh, um, modern practice in performing Shakespeare. Um, there are a lot of words we heard some, particularly in Lady Macbeth's speech, there were some words that we just don't know in uh, modern English. Is there a trend to just change those to be understandable, uh, familiar words in in modern English? In editions? Like well, no, I think editorially in, or in performance? Yeah. Oh, in performance, yes. Oh, absolutely. And because a lot of Shakespeare plays in performance have to be edited down because the, the original are too long. Um, I mean, one thing is that the, you know, the... The quartos are probably pretty close to performance text in a lot of cases. The folio version of many plays is a fatter version because it is uh, it's not necessarily the most faithful performance text. It it, it has accumulated um, you know material that perhaps the the um, the company the king's men you know had um, you know two versions of a of a of a speech and they sort of put them into one for the purposes of the folio. So a lot of folio versions are a little long to be performed. And so people have to make choices, you know, and directors often choose to, when something is difficult or uh, sounds funny to a modern ear, well, they, they can just take that out and, and work around it, you know? So, yeah. Here's a question for Kip. Um, you showed two clips of Kenneth Branagh. Uh, are you a fan of his work? Uh, uh, no, but these were free on YouTube. So. Ah. 
There you go. That's, <laughs> that's a short answer. And they had the subtitles uh, yeah. in, yeah. which is uh, uh, important. Uh, I had to put m- m- manually the subtitles into Lady Macbeth's speech mm-hmm. because uh, Judy rattles that off pretty fast. <laughs> to be sure that uh, didn't go by. Uh, Unrecognized. Well, your answer comports with people's opinion of Kenneth Branagh, making sure that he's, you know, got his his viewpoint and his presentation out front because he directed some of the movies that, yeah. that he was starred in as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you mentioned the second folio. Um, what were the circumstances of the publication of the second folio, and when was it? Uh, was it many years later, or no? It's what is it? I'd have to look it up. It's it's not too many years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was there was a demand, you know, after after the publication of the first folio and th- in the beginning of the canonization of Shakespeare, it was clear that there would be a, an appetite for a new and improved version, you know, with a few more plays. So the original, I would say, Shakespeare having been the ground having been cleared for Shakespeare as this kind of sovereign genius in the first folio. Uh, it the, the the rules loosened a little bit starting in the second, and more plays could come in, you know, because because how else do you differentiate a second version of something from the first? You you say new and improved, right? So they so, so new things were added, new plays were added, and then that starts the process of the shifting in and out of the canon of of different plays. Did any shift in and out because a publisher wanted to say, you know, you guys did it wrong and we did it right? And- uh, no, I don't think so. No, that wasn't no, yeah. that wasn't the motive. Okay, good. Um, here's one on on the true authorship of the Merchant of Venice: Christopher Marlowe, who was there, or Shakespeare, who never was, who never was, who never was. I think in Venice. Oh, in Venice, never had oh, gone to Venice. Oh, oh I see. Um, uh, well, I think Shakespeare. Um, I, you know, he wrote. Uh, if we stop, <laughs> if we say he's not the author of plays, where he, I mean, to our knowledge, he never left England, right? right. So, uh, and his life is almost entirely, as far as we know, circum. He has some missing years, but it's pretty likely he wasn't a Cervantes, like taken captive by pirates in Algiers, you know. So he didn't have those kind of experiences. So uh, his life was, as far as we know, pretty much circumscribed by Stratford and London. So if we if we say he couldn't have written any of the plays that take place in all the places that we know he never were he never was you know he wouldn't, there wouldn't be very many yes there <laughs> wouldn't be very many plays so you know he was he he was able to uh, uh, I, I always imagine him as a guy who encountered people like Marlowe and many other contemporaries who had been to a lot of places and pumped them and and could figure out what's the thing about a place that's not necessarily true to life but that will will resonate with an audience. What do they expect Venice to be? What do they expect, uh, you know, Illyria to be? And he could sketch a, 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 a locale in a way that, you know, that then interacts with people's knowledge and experience of the real place. You know, you people even today go to Venice expecting it to be like in The Merchant of Venice because the the, the, the depiction of it is as, as a culture and as a as a kind of uh, uh, way station and crossroads is so vivid that that you know his 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 rendition of these places has a kind of power over the real place after in some cases you know uh, Ham, you know uh, Denmark and so mm-hmm. on yeah so you're not in favor of uh, accusing him of cultural appropriation and you know, <laughs> deleting all of those plays that he didn't go to right yeah no you know he's, Good. okay yeah. <laughs> um, Kip what is your favorite Shakespeare opera Oh wow, that's I, I 
I would have to say uh, you can do a top five. Britain's <laughs> uh, Britain's been some night stream, which is a piece maybe most of you don't know, but I think it's just wonderful, marvelous. In fact, in, in a longer version of this talk, I I show the uh, the speech uh, uh, where uh, uh, the uh, puck is given the flower that he's supposed to mm -hmm. dabble the dew into the eyes of the sleeping lover. Um, it's a wonderful. Uh, comparison of the speech in the play and Britain's glorious uh, musical setting of that. So I'd have to pick that one as my favorite. And Roland, I'll bet you can guess what your question is. What's your favorite play? Shakespeare play? Uh, yeah. Uh, it depends on the mood that I'm in. But if, <laughs> uh, but if I'm in a, a pensive, and it also depends on whatever I'm working on at the moment. Uh, I, they play sort of go in and out of favor with me. But I would have to say probably um, Probably the tempest uh, for the for just the complexity of the world, the vision of the world that's in it. Yeah. How about movie adaptations? That's the next thing. Movie adaptations that struck you, both of you. Um, mm. It doesn't have to be about an opera, but something in a well, movie adaptation. That's I was in college when the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet uh, came out. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I remember it to this day. I do too. Like, yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I Olivia Hussey and um, Leonard Whiting. Yeah. Wow. I'd say that probably in terms of the impact it had on me when I saw it. Yeah. When I was young. I was going to say, do you think that you'd feel the same way now as you did as a teenager watching a teenage film? I haven't seen it in years. I don't yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting question. If any of you haven't seen it, I would, you know, get thee to YouTube. Because... <laughs> I went was educated at a Catholic school and they took in Wisconsin and they took us all the way up to Milwaukee, like a 40 mile thing for a trip to see Romeo and Juliet and with the nuns and the nuns didn't realize <laughs> they were expecting Shakespeare, you know, <laughs> um, they said, no, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> We've just ruined the entire class. So. <laughs> um, all right. So, in your uh, preparation, uh, we, we're going to ask you the same question, Roland, that we asked uh, Kip, which is slightly different. So you went to school. You somehow got on to Shakespeare. I mean, you've done a bunch of other things, too, and you taught a lot of other things. But how did you kind of pull a big part of your career into the Shakespearean realm? Uh, you know, I when I was in college, um, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I was just uh, – um, I, I, I had a, I had a high school teacher. I'm from Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, you look closely at me and forget about the way I'm dressed and everything. And, uh, I'm a Latino guy from LA <laughs> and, uh, I had a wonderful high school teacher who turned me on to literature. And, uh, I, I just saw him actually, he's in his early nineties. I saw him two weeks ago and had lunch with him and, you know, every time I see him, I always thank him for making my whole life and career possible by being that one inspirational person. And we read Shakespeare with him, and and it had an impact on me. But when I went to college, uh, I was fortunate to take a course that I think courses like this almost don't exist anymore, in which we read over the course of a whole year all of Shakespeare. Oh. And um, it that course gave me a kind of lifelong comfort with every nook and cranny of that canon because I had read all of it, you know. And then once you've read all of it and you know the stories and you're never – somebody mentions a fairly obscure play like Timon of Athens or something, you you 
complace it. You know what happened. You remember it well because we had to give reports on all the plays and talk about them. And that course had such an impact on me. Uh, and um, and then at the same time, because I never – I'm not a, a, a single author kind of guy. You know, I'm always try, interested in relationships of figures. At the same time, I was taking another course that had a huge impact on me on Cervantes. And I put those – and those two courses really had absolutely nothing to do with each other. But in my mind, I put them together because I was taking them around the same time. And I started to think of these writers talking to each other. And that, you know, that was decades ago. But that became the foundation of my thinking about some of what you heard in the talk when I talk about um, my particular take on this, which is that this is a generation. This generation thinks of things a certain way. Cervantes thinks in terms of fiction as having to have multiple perspectives, but Shakespeare does too, but they do it differently. But if you look at them together, you see that there's a, a consistency to that, like a generational outlook. Uh, and that just became the foundation of, you know, of my thinking about the period. So it really, it went back to teachers. It went back to teachers and, and, and teachers at formative moments that got me thinking about things and then putting them together in my own, you know, my own way. As a, go ahead. Get, I was going to say, I have a similar experience actually in, in mm -hmm. high school. Sophomore year when Devil's Lake, North Dakota, we read Julius Caesar mm -hmm. and it's in my brain today. You know, let me have men about me that are fat, sleek headed men and such that sleep a nights, yon Cassius as a lean and hungry looks. Such men are dangerous. <laughs> it just sticks with you, you know, my God. <laughs> and I, I, I remember her, my teacher so well to this day. Mm-hmm. Well, your observation about uh, generational differences, you know, and you, you had the time frame for both Cervantes and, and Shakespeare being born at a certain time, looking at the world a certain way and everything. So you teach students today um, that are coming out of having been born in the 21st century. So do you see a generational shift going on now that is a different framework than the baby boomers, you know, mm. have? Um, and Kip, I don't know if you... Do you deal with younger people? With it? Yeah. yeah. So uh, both of you, it'd be interesting to see your point of view on, do you think a generational shift is happening or do you think that that's exaggerated? I think it's exaggerated. I mean, I, I'm a little bit, um, you know, um, my wife and I talk about this a lot. She's a professor at Stanford too. And, and um, you know, she's, she's more attuned to differences over time of students. To me, they're all, I think they're all wonderful and they're all students and they're, and they're all, and I've been, a university professor now for um, this is my fortieth year, and uh, uh, so I've seen you know at least two whole generations or more. Uh, I don't you know I don't notice big differences. the 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 background is different. The preparation level is probably different. Um, you know, but if you but if you find I during the pandemic I did a, a first time I'd ever taught on on Zoom right and. Uh, I was uh, it was in the depths of the pandemic, and I was dreading this so much. And I thought, oh, I'm, what am I going to do? I, how am I going to show things? And you know, I'm used to giving them a handout, and and what if the dog barks? And you know, all kinds of things at home. You know, I've never taught at home before, and uh, and you know how it was. We were all cooped up there in the house, and you know, I have a at that point a preteen daughter who was like, Daddy, I need this and I need that and so on, <laughs> and. Uh, and then I, you know, I'm talking to these kids. There were, I think, 30 of them on Zoom, and they were all in their childhood bedrooms, right? The ones who were freshmen had never been to, had never actually come to Stanford to start college. They were still at home. Mm -hmm. 
And um, so we were, you know, just talking and I was talking about the things that I was talking to you about, you know, like how to think about, we went through this the early medieval and early modern period. And I was saying, you know, how, what are these writers thinking? Like, what are they trying to do? And we would work on formulations. Like, what do you, how would you explain it? Why would you read somebody like Philip Sidney or Thomas Nash or any of these people? And what is it that they're trying to, yes, the language is old and the, and the, they talk about things that you don't know the references, but what is it ultimately about? And the formulation that with the group we sort of hit on is something I used in, I said, I quoted it in the talk, um, uh, but you didn't know that I was quoting from something that my class and I talked about, which was they're doing what all writers of all periods do, which is trying to show you what it feels like to be alive at that moment. And that's the same thing that freshmen now who are writers and write on the side and are interested in their poetry or their fiction, they're trying to do the same thing. So I said to these students, that's what these figures are doing. You have to give them enough of your attention and your your um, effort that you can connect with them in that way, exactly the way that you would want somebody 100 years or 300 years from now to do with what you're writing. You want people to spend enough time with what you're doing that they can reconstruct enough of the context that you connect and you can hear the voice of somebody from the past. And once you do that, all the generational differences of baby boomers, and it just to me, it just melts away. If you find what what gets young people interested in this kind of thing and you give them some basic tools and then you sort of turn them loose with the right way to frame it as, as a, uh, a challenge of some kind of an educational experience, then, then, then I, I don't notice differences among generations. To me, they're all, you know, there's, 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 there's just students. Kip? You see any generational shift in opera? Um, yeah, to some extent, uh, people are obviously much less familiar with music in general. Yeah. Uh, people don't grow up playing an instrument as the way they used to. Um, people don't take piano lessons anymore, so mm -hmm. they approach opera with a different level of background familiarity. Mm -hmm. And of course, nowadays we deal with the uh, the sort of the whole DAI DEI uh, lens, and so. Shakespeare operas, as well as the standard canon of, of, of opera, is looked at through the, uh, you know, searching for the racism, the sexism, the uh, paternalism, the colonialism, the heteronormity, and all these things that are, are all these blames are put on Shakespeare along with uh, all the other composers uh, and authors. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's a certain healthiness in this new look. And, uh, at these pieces, I don't, you know, they're not going to go away. Mm -hmm. I, I argue this about opera in general. You know, the marriage of Figaro is always going to be there. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. uh, the industry that puts it on uh, may be different, and the way we look at it may be different. But uh, similarly with the uh, the plays of Shakespeare and the operas based on them. And we can't damage them by interpretation. No. Right? They'll be there. <laughs> they will survive our interpretation. <laughs> we will be forgotten, and they will, they will survive. Yeah. Yeah, there, there were... Plenty of things from the 1920s, analyzing different authors and everything based Absolutely. on Freudian psychology. That all Absolutely. has all it was the big thing and nearly destroyed some people, uh, some authors, and it all went away. And the authors survived. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, each each generate well. At least it's kind of pop psychology and pop culture that gets destroyed because it's for the moment anyway. It's fleeting. It's fleeting. Yeah. yeah. It's it's its design. Yeah. But but the stuff that lasts, that, that as you said, makes you feel alive, and what it's like to be alive in another time that lasts. Hopefully, 
<laughs> well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you. And so ends another event. This is our eighth uh, digital uh, and live uh, program by Humanities West since the pandemic began. Um, and it's uh, over 40 years of doing this. And it's the 121st year of enlightened discussion for the Commonwealth Club. And so here we are doing both at the same time. So thank you very much for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.